what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Shappi Korsandi is a stand-up comedian and author. She's appeared on countless TV and radio shows, including Mock the Week, Have I Got News For You, QI, Just A Minute, and many more. Her first book, published in 2009, was a memoir entitled A Beginner's Guide to Acting English. It detailed her early years in England following her family's exile from their home country of Iran when her father was deemed a political dissident. In 2016, she published her second book and first novel, the best-selling Nina Is Not Okay. Her latest book, Kissing Emma, a young adult novel, was published in September this year. Most importantly, she's a former president and now vice president of Humanist UK. Shappi, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. My absolute pleasure. Nice to speak with you. A lot of people's uh, most formative influences, obviously the ones that uh, come at them when they're young, in their family, and you've probably got one of the more interesting upbringings and uh, parental influences of people that we've had on the podcast so far. Um, Obviously, you started your life in Iran. Yeah. Then your whole family was forced into exile because of uh, your father. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Hmm. Um, Well, this whole thing that we were in exile dominated my life for a massive part of my life because um, we always thought we'd go back to Iran but we didn't and we couldn't because the regime didn't change. But if I just give um, people who might not know the story of my life, um, I don't know where they have been, why have they not followed the story of my life? Um, My father is a very well-known Iranian writer and poet, satirist, and um, he was very for getting uh, rid of the Shah of Iran, one of the millions that wanted a revolution, But um, it was very plain that the um, Ayatollah's vision for Iran wasn't the same as people who wanted to get rid of the dictator Shah. And as they implemented more, um, you know, uh, horror. God, I'm trying Mm. to be polite about the Ayatollah. Why didn't I just say horror? (laughs) Yeah, you don't Um, need to be polite about the Ayatollah. (laughs) I don't know why. He's not even around. Um, Yes, so my father then wrote, criticising the Ayatollah. Um, That was um, the reason he was put on their their list, their wanted list, their death list, which I I quip. (laughs) It's very different to a bucket list. So, So, yeah, so that happened. And we had to flee. We were already, actually, to be fair, my mum and my dad and my brother and I were already in London having quite a fancy life. Um, He was a very popular journalist, you know, writer. He was earning lots of money. And he was like, oh, brilliant, go and, like, spend a couple of years in London. The kids will learn English, go to an English school. That'd be a real adventure for our family. But then when he went back to Iran, his offices, after the revolution, his offices were mobbed. And, we, we, you know, it was as a child, all of this happened 
as telephone conversations. <laughs> you know, my life as a child was listening to these frantic telephone conversations with between my parents and family in Iran when the revolution happened, when the Iran-Iraq war happened. So did you have a strong sense in those early years of your life of, of being an exile, a family in exile? I, I had a very strong sense of us being in exile because Iran was home. Um, the language we spoke was Farsi. That's really critical. Um, that's, that's a really critical thing for me, the fact that our language didn't change. I have friends who um, came as economic migrants and their parents were very different. They um, It really mattered to them to um, speak English at home because their commitment as economic migrants was very different to the mindset of a refugee, uh, whereas ours was the opposite. You must maintain your Farsi, because otherwise when we go back to Iran, you'll be behind in school. Um, so, and I, I, I just remember as a child, the horrible feeling of being far away from family when my 19-year-old uncle was shot dead um, by an off-duty police officer during the revolution and what that did to my family and what that did to my mum, not being able to go home and be with her mother. And then, you know, the Iran-Iraq war was like trying to get hold of my my gran and then you couldn't because they'd carpet bombed Iran and all the lines were down. And just, just being very quiet in the house because we knew that our mum and dad were f- quietly frantic and waiting for the lines to go back up and then they can get in touch and then see who survived and who's died and there was a lot of horror stories coming out of Iran and then on the on the other side you know I was skipping off to school every morning and and being um you know uh, making paper mache masks and you know feeling they're doing summer fates and um learning um hymns (laughs) (laughs) at school and that all seemed to be um, a world away from home life yeah and did that have any lasting effects well that's interesting because um as I get older it's the the ways that it's changed me are revealed to me more like there was a time where I was utterly obsessed with my Iranian identity um, utterly obsessed with it, very proud, um, and and I still am. Don't get me wrong, but it's not so much pride now. It's just love. It's affection, affection for the language and the culture and the people and the oh, the hospitality. I love that you can just go to an Iranian's house, and if they're a complete stranger, you can still just raid their fridge, and it's rude of them to object to that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy that. Um, but then I, I grew up a bit and I had children and my career and my time, there was no time for navel gazing really. Right. And then I started to feel very English actually. I think as, as a stand up, when I'm going around the country in all the, every, I've been to every nook and cranny of the United Kingdom and they're, they're my, they're mine. It's mine, you know, and so I very, very much felt um, British or English, dare I say, even, because when I'm in Scotland, I feel very English. When I'm in America, <laughs> when I'm in America, I feel English more than British, you know. There, there is a massive difference. And um, I didn't want my children to have the same identity issues as I did, though. Um, 
I didn't want them to be bogged down with it all the way I was. Would you describe them as issues? I mean, I, this because there are there is a version of that story that's obviously um, could be could have been completely unproblematic. Is you know you've got this Iranian identity, you've got this English identity. They're both fantastic, and you just enjoy them both in an uncomplicated way. But did that's not quite how you how it developed for you there was a strong sense of feeling an outsider for a good many in england in england a huge sense of being an outsider because of the way we look you know let's not be mealy mouthed about it if you know i was a, a white iranian and there are white iranians i probably wouldn't feel it as intensely and you know um it doesn't take much as a child to make you feel um, that you don't belong. Sometimes all it takes is, you know, a couple of adults shouting a racist slur at your family out the window of their cars. Now, in in the many years we've lived in in um, Britain, that's probably ha- happened a handful of times. But that's that for a child is enough yeah. um, to then go, wow, you're telling. And then I remember as a child feeling that um oh god does everyone feel this way about us because there was no internet then there was no twitter to be able to say for my mum to go on twitter and say um I was walking down the street today and this group of people in the car screamed racial abuse at me and my children now for all that we moan about twitter and all the bad things about twitter the wonderful thing about it is my mum would be able to go on a medium like that and she would get an outpouring of support yeah, yeah. from people. But back then, we didn't know. We didn't know that, you know, the punk that spat at my mum's feet on the tube in the 70s was an anomaly. We thought, right. oh, this is what English people think of us. And then you grow up and you realise that they don't. And um, travelling with stand-up around the country when I was very young was brilliant because it made me feel because when you do stand up you um can, you you have to connect with people from all walks of life different nationalities different religions different um social classes you've got to connect with everybody and you can't come out of that really and still have national identity issues not after 20 years anyway be a bit odd if i did and would you say that that original feeling when you were younger of being an outsider helped with your being able to you know, get get in touch with lots of different people, see their perspective, all the things you've talked about <laughs> needing to do when you're a, when you're doing stand up? I think so. I think when you come from two worlds, whether that's two nations, or whether whether you're someone whose parents divorced. I often think of it like that. Think if you were someone whose parents divorced and suddenly you were, your life was split in half or it was in just a different shape to the shape it was before or if you've suffered any kind of loss, any kind of rebuilding and recalibrating your own family and your own life and your own reality, then that is, I mean, it's inevitably going to make you a bit more able I guess to put your feet in other people's shoes or understand and not understand people but at least understand that you don't understand Mm. um I think it's definitely given me that and with my children even though I haven't consciously instilled um a sense of Iranian-ness in them 
as my son said, like, of course we are there because you're raising us. It, they they see me, like my son, as he's getting older, he's he's really noticing there's some things about me that he finds funny and really foreign, like Iranian. I was like, really? Because, of course, his dad's English, and they just yeah. do things differently. They're, they're, they're just... Um, just more, I guess, organized in their thinking <laughs> and in their whereas well, what I'm, are those Iranian things then? What are they? Are they are they attitudes or, um, or beliefs, values, approaches? Well, one of the things he said when I quizzed him, he said, You treat everyone like they're your family until they let you down. Mm. Um, and I think that's a very Iranian thing. Everyone is your friend until they hurt you. Whereas um, English people, that reserve that we talk right. about is a really sensible self-protection. It's about it's being boundaried. I guess that's the word. I think um, British people are much more boundaried than Iranians in, in uh, social circumstances. For example, if I... If I'm having a dinner party and a friend rings up and says, actually, I've got three cousins that are staying. Is it all right if I bring them? I'm like, brilliant. Yes, we are. But if I had three cousins saying, staying, I wouldn't dream of taking them to my neighbor's dinner party right. with me at, at, at an hour's notice. I wouldn't dream of it because I understand that's different. That's, that's and neither's worse, neither's better. Yeah, yeah. But there is a... But is the Iranian side of it, as you're putting it, a sort of openness or a sort of, what is it? Is it like everyone's your family or is it there's there's, there's no family, everything's open and everyone's the same? What, where's it's it come a, from, do you think? It's a conscious show of hospitality. Right, so it's a hospitality culture almost. Like to, to a degree that is um, quite unfathomable, even me. Like my family think I'm really um, moat and drawbridge. <laughs> no. the fact that my brother rang me he doesn't you know he doesn't live with me my brother he lives in Rome and he rang me and he said that oh this brilliant woman that I met in India is coming to England and she's got four kids they're such a great family they want to come here for a two-week holiday is it all right if they stay with you um and I said no it's not all right. I don't know this person. You only met them a couple of times when you're on holiday in Goa. No, that's not going to happen. And he went, oh, okay. And I know there would have been a conversation. He would have gone back to my parents and gone, she is so tight. And my dad would have gone, well, maybe your friend can stay here with us. You know, that all. And cause, so when I was growing up, we had, with no exaggeration, constant guests either for breakfast lunch dinner or staying with us and we didn't have to know them people would come instead. I wonder if that's I mean I think that that's uh you say that that's not a British thing but my great-grandmother was a bit like that you know she had refugees in the 30s and like an endless you know if we ever went to visit her there'd be hordes of people almost like a conveyor belt coming through in that same sort of she's from the northeast and an Irish extraction see I, I was I was wondering when we were going to mention Irish people. <laughs> Do people compare the two? Oh my God! I went to Ireland for the first time when I was in my mid twenties. I couldn't believe how Iranian they were. Like I was made to feel like 
I was a stranger at this party, but I was made to feel like the guest of honour. There, there is such a difference, I think. Um, and also your grand's generation and also where you, where you are in the country, whether you're a city person or a country person, these all have an impact. But it embarrasses my son how friendly I am to people. He's always a bit like, you don't even know them. Why did you say, let them you know, <laughs> I saw because they've just moved in down the road. And that, that's, I don't think that's an Iranian thing. I think that's a time thing. That's a, you know, I don't know. Like I don't have, I, I don't have um, exact answers of what part is because I'm Iranian and what of part course. is my nature or, because you yeah. get some yeah. blooming cold Iranians too. Don't get me well, wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And it does sound, but it sounds like openness and hospitality and that sort of um, approach to things is a value for you. It's something you think is good. You think, you know, you're glad that that's something that you It you is. Practice. You know what? It's, it is a value. It is a massive value. However, I am very conscious of um, the fact that in my family, it was my dad being the showman and being the sociable one and inviting everyone around to dinner and my mum doing all the bloody cooking and cleaning. <laughs> you know, I watched my mother create banquets at a moment's notice and, uh, you know, with no choice in the matter, really. So I think there is a lot of that as well. You know, there's, I've got a very, I'm very lucky in that um, I don't relate to that. Sometimes people say to me, oh, you know what Iranian parents are like? They wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I do feel like, oh, I, mine weren't like that. Mine were very much like my dad would say, um, find a job that you love so much that you would do for free. You know, that was something really important. That's a very important and unusual um, influence. Yeah. And then he, I remember when I was very young, he said to me, ne like, never dread a day, never dread a Monday. You know, make your life. So you don't dread waking up for work or the next day is a write-off because you've got work. Make your and, and that's just a creative person, isn't it? Were you a creative person yourself from an early age? Obviously, something's creativity is going to be something that's valued in your home given your your father's, you know, vocation and um I think I think communication is valued. Right. Communication. Um which is what creativity is, isn't it? Creative people want to make stuff and say stuff and tell stories that will connect them with other people. That is a, a, a huge value of my family. My dad's someone that would, you know, have the bloke who had come round to sell us double glazing staying for dinner and a former, you know, um, advisor to the Prime Minister of Iran at the same table. And um, that sort of equality of status, um, I would say, was a fundamental value of my parents. Um, and they demonstrated that. They didn't just speak it. Because uh, everyone wanted to hang out with my dad because he's a very popular man and a, a very popular writer so people from all walks would want to hang out with him but it was all about the person never the position um 
and and that's something that I find quite difficult in life when the position of some the, someone has because of their education or because of their birth that that ele, elevates them to a place where you know you can only go near them if you are you know on a par like that whereas mm. that, that's why I love stand up because you don't you I don't know if if the the couple in the front row are the you know I don't I don't know if they're doctors I don't know if they're gardeners I don't know if they're left wing right wing religious fanatics atheists I don't know but in that moment we're we're just connecting on a level where none of that nonsense and I think it is nonsense a lot of the time matters that we're just being people so you see that's interesting so is it it, I don't know I'm not sure whether what you're saying is that the creative act is sort of inherently egalitarian that it is just a great leveler or that for you shaped by your father and by other influences it's that are you saying it's is it sort of always that are you deducing a a sort of general principle from this because obviously there is elitist art and sort of you know elitist creativity or or at least jealously guarded you know sort of um, special or obscure but maybe that it is the case that because I suppose everyone can in principle be touched by any um thing that's been created and can in principle be connected with or or are you saying that for you it's specifically about me for me because everyone everyone creates from their own perspective and their own life and their own under, oh, can I tell you something really honestly? In lockdown, my vocabulary has completely left the building. I think it's because I'm only really talking to my children at length. <laughs> like when you just said egalitarian, I was like, oh my God, that was the word I was searching for. <laughs> because that's a good word. Um, but that's obviously the atmosphere that you're describing at home. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In, in fact, my dad used to publish a satirical magazine called Askarara, which literally means Joe Blogs. And really? it was very deliberately for the everyman. And in his poetry, because he's somebody who, he grew up in a, I guess, an orphanage, children's home after his dad died when he was seven. And they were a rural family. And of course, rural Iran is very different to rural Britain. Right. So um, they were poor, like... Uh, he was working in a bobbin factory by the time he was 12 and he was delivering yogurts on a bike. And then with his, you know, then, then he'd, he'd go to a cafe with his pennies and buy himself a hot chocolate because in the cafe they'd have a television and the television would have comedy shows. And he was like, I can write comedy scripts. So he, he, you know, he wrote comedy scripts and sold them. And that's how he started his, his career and by sort of 1920 he was famous so someone from that background is not going to be writing poetry that you have to be university educated to appreciate obviously you know I'm I'm not um saying that one form is better than the other or if you're you know the way but but for me that's really important as well because I'm just not I always feel a bit lost when um, when things get a bit elitist. I feel out of the loop again. Um, I do feel much more comfortable um, when something's 
clearly meant for everyone. And that happens in stand-up as well. We have stand-up comedy now that is very uh, that's very different um, to what I sort of grew up watching in the comedy clubs. Mm. Well, what's the difference? Is it Which way has the difference gone? It's, it's very intellectual, deliberately self, very, oh, I'm trying to be polite. I just can't bear the fact that some people believe that, oh, these audiences are too stupid to understand my brilliance. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so, so they, they get like a niche following, a niche audience and, and are very clever, clever they, about it. Yeah. And 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 that's that's the sort of, that's the point where I sort of, back out the room slowly because for me it's got to be no preparation you don't need to have any qualifications to enjoy something you don't have to enjoy it, it might think it's dreadful but for me that's like that's mm. and is that a general attitude of yours I mean obviously it's uh it, do you have an egalitarian attitude I do is it a political value and a social value for you as well as a professional one? I know. I, I was raised a socialist with socialist values. And I learned very quickly at school to drop my Cockney accent because I went to London State School and I dropped my Cockney accent um, and spoke like this because I learned very quickly that if you speak like this, you get away with murder. <laughs> Literally. You do no, literally, yeah. <laughs> and I um I I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder um a few a couple of years ago, so I had that at school and I had dyslexia, so I spent much of my time at school thinking I'm thick, but I wasn't. Well, I knew I wasn't, but other people did. So the way I and I but I wasn't part of the the kids that were troublemakers, but my the standard of my work was the same standard as theirs. Um, so I was put in the same group. So it was really, but I realized that in amongst those guys, if I spoke like this, I'd get away with not doing my physics homework because I bloody well couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And I get a bit bitter sometimes that none of the teachers noticed that my English and my French were brilliant, but every other subject I was failing at. So despite how I speak and how I present myself, I think that there is a part of me that is so connected with a, coming from a background of, you know, illiterate uh, grandparents and va- a value of a person being on their own self-education, mm. you know, not, not in qualifications, uh, but how much you as a human being um, are curious about the world around you and the people around you to have curiosity for people and not judge them on um on 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 elitist things not 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 not, that's not to say those things aren't brilliant I I once dated a guy that had professor in his title I thought that was delightful I'm, I'm not denigrating that but I'm just saying that it's just not a way I was I was um raised to hold above everything else Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. 
If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the Humanist Approach to Life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. You mentioned your grandparents there, and I know that actually, I think lots of us reach for our grandparents when we're trying to think about our own identities, don't we? And think about where we came from. It's often to our grandparents that people, people's stories often, if you ask them what their background is, their stories will often start with what their grandparents did and, you know, and, and so on. But, but you've mentioned your grandparents lots of times, actually, in your stand-up and in, in other writing. And I wondered, we've talked about your parents. I wondered if your grandparents, uh, or at least your knowledge of your grandparents, uh, shaped you as well or gave you any particular perspectives that were important. They had, my grandparents, my grandmothers had really tough lives as women in uh, in Iran from the social uh, class that they were. I mean, call it working class in this country, but we don't have that exact system in Iran, but it's pretty much the same. My dad's mum was phenomenally intelligent and clever um, and, and, and funny, funny. Oh, she was funny. And uh, she had a really tough life. Really tough life in many ways. I remember once and my mum and dad were having a row and I was crying because my parents were rowing. And my grandma said, honestly, Shepi, I don't know why you're crying. Your, your, your dad's so lovely to your, your mother, really. He never hits her. Your granddad used to beat me with a spade. And she was five foot one and funny. And I thought, how can you do that to this? But it was rife. It was so, it was almost. So she hot. had difficult times because she was a woman. Because she was a woman. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Because she was a woman. And my mum's, my mum's mum, I actually feel like I have a duty of care to people when I tell them her story. It was really sad. So she was married off at 12 to my granddad and my, my her mum who was my great grandma was married at nine years old and I met this woman I'm, I remember her from Iran Aziz her name was she had red hair and everyone adored her she was married at nine she had my grandma um, and she ran away she divorced her husband when she was 16 and then in Iran the law meant and means that the children automatically go to the dad so she didn't see her her daughter again until she was having a baby, until she was having my mum when she was 13 years old. That's my, my son's age. And uh, so my grandmother was fostered and she, you know, she was married off to my granddad who was a soldier. And uh, they had nine children, but a really tough life. I don't think consent was a thing. No, it doesn't them. sound like it. No. And, and, you know, she was, and that's why when I was, my mum and dad, though, they, they met at a wedding, they fell in love and all of that sort of stuff. But when I was divorcing, it was when my husband and I weren't getting on, it was really interesting the way the women in the family were like, we're behind you, we're there, we'll, we'll get you, don't worry, do it, do it. There was no sort of now shappy, there were, it was quite the opposite. They were. Why do you think that was? Is that just a, a sort of solidarity of the sex? It honestly, pretty much every woman in my family of my generation is divorced, and there is absolutely no judgment from family members, from the women, and I don't think the men would dare. <laughs> there is no, because we all know our history. 
we all know what happened to my great grandma, what happened to my grandma. And it's freedom, you know, and um, it's just the appreciation that we're not um, by law, by law, we don't lose our children. I remember like my granny saying to me, you can keep your kid, you know, whereas they couldn't, they couldn't keep their children. And that's how they keep women in really horrific marriages to this day in Iran. There's a brilliant documentary called Divorce Iran Style. Um, And it really shows you what women go through to um, keep their children because men get full custody immediately. Mm. And uh, you can imagine, you know, as, as happens the other way around too, you know, when people are angry at each other and, you know, they hurt, hurt each other and, and all of that. But we are very much in, into um, freedom for the women. <laughs> and is that, is that are the women in your family feeling that way? Is that out of uh, a sense of the contrast between what's possible for you and what wasn't possible for your female and, and ancestresses and, and, and close relatives? Or is it more than that? Is it as you almost feel an obligation to stand for women in that? in that respect is it is it a really is it an important thing for you this 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 the freedom of women yeah yeah oh just massive God, yeah. It it's it's um it drives me um if I think about it too much I get really sad when I think of uh, my cousins and stuff who didn't get out of Iran um because as women right so yeah, opportunities to go to university are more now and all of that. But everything's still um, so much harder. But what what I found interesting about my family was with me, there was there was no judgment um, about, I could, I could have whatever boyfriends I wanted, I can, whatever. But the one thing my parents weren't keen on was me going out with an Iranian man. That was like their one thing. They were just like... That's a headache none of us need because it would just be, oh, we'd have to get to know their family and then, they'll, you know, there would be all of that sort of, because you can't just like see each other once or twice in, at the wedding and then perhaps at birthdays, are we going to go and see my, my daughter's in-laws? They would become family with the, that family if I was dating them and it would just be. And That's then, interesting, isn't it? Because there are exiles and people who are, refugees or, or who've made a life for themselves and other countries for other reasons who very much sort of stick with people who were also of, of that same diaspora but this sounds almost like it's the complete opposite you know um Iran- i have in in my entire life of being iranian i have never ever ever heard any iranian um impose an Iranian partner for their child. That that whole concept of staying Iranian does. We're very much chameleons. I do. I'm, I'm so conscious. I'm talking to a classicist, but I think it, I think Herodotus did say. I think that's right. I mean, I was going to I was going to resist the historical perspective, but you're right. It's always been a culture that sees itself as almost universalist. It's sort of you know very out there for everyone. So. Like there is such a difference between Iranians that were raised in England and Iranians that were raised in America. Because obviously I, I know the diaspora in lots of different countries. A French Iranian is French as hell. 
I went to um, lunch with Marijan Satrapi, you know, who wrote Persepolis. Yes, yes. Brilliant, brilliant book and film. And I remember I was so excited about meeting her. Persepolis gave the most beautiful and accurate account of, of our generation's experience as exiles and refugees that I've ever seen, although she was from a very rich family, but so many um, things in common. And she sat at this restaurant. It was just before the smoking ban. And she goes, but it is, you know, it is fascistic, no, to say nobody can smoke. It's just, and I was like, you're a French woman. It's so French. <laughs> I'm so French. Just defiantly having her last legal cigarette all over our faces because who are you? Tell me what. So beautifully French. And, you know, German Iranians are German. <laughs> and, you know, and my family, you know, we we are we are very 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 British very English and so no there was never that that idea that you've got to marry an Iranian and uphold our culture. I think we are so at one with our identity that we never feel and crucially, crucially Iranians identify with their nation and their culture rather than a religion. I think with friends who um, are from different. Uh, immigrant communities who have um, religion, then that becomes very, very important. They marry another um, person of the same religion. Otherwise, their parents would be very disappointed. I think that is a freedom that Iranians have because I've never heard any, any Iranian sort of say oh you've got to marry another muslim or you've got to marry another jew and right. actually no jewish iranians <laughs> i'll make an exception for they you know the that's the same you know they'd prefer a partner to convert but you know that that's possible but and is that because you think as as an iranian you're conscious of being able to reach back thousands of years into your culture i mean it's just so that like, there's no vulnerability there's no cultural vulnerability there at all really is there? it's an no. ancient sort of I love that. I, I love the way you put that. There's no cultural vulnerability. We are the most. <laughs> <laughs> it's <vulnerable>. quite robust. <laughs> We're very robust in our culture and our identity. You're absolutely right. And we've been such a mishmash of different peoples. Um, and it's just been in our history to um, blend in and take on the new. We carry that on. Do you still feel connected to Iran now? I mean, do you feel invested in its future? Do you worry about its political present? Do you hope for, well, we can all hope for a better time, but do you know what I mean? Do you feel a, uh, a strong connection still there? Very much so. Very, very much uh, feel connected with Iran. Um, I can't um, ever forget the fact that I'm here by sheer good fortune. You know, um, I'm able to live the life I le live with the freedoms that I have because my parents managed to get out and and they managed not to be killed. You know, they're not managed. You know what I mean? They didn't. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, they escaped. And also, critically, I uh, have native command of the language. And when you know a people's language, then you know them, you know, you know, all their idiosyncrasies, you know, their fears, their worries. When I, when I watch Iran on the news, there's always that snippet where you just hear the local noises before the presenter starts the English report. And I'll just hear Iranians talking and it 
really moves me. It really moves me. They're like, I, I just feel, God, I wish I could transport myself to Iran and hang out and and just be with these brilliant, funny, um, incredible uh, food loving. <laughs> Are <laughs> you hungry, Shafi? Are you getting hungry? You know I, just, <laughs> I just thought the thing that fundamentally makes me Iranian more than anything else, apart from the language, is the food. The food is... Uh, I could cry sometimes when I um, eat Iranian food. I feel like, yes, this is... I know what you mean. I went to a Zoroastrian um, like buffet thing once and I just couldn't st- I was I was meant to be sort of mingling and meeting all the people I was just like oh, yeah. mm, mm, mm. and all I was doing was eating the whole time and then I actually cl- made sure I cleared space in next year in my diary for the new year festival so that I could go back for the food <laughs> yeah 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 what the the Nooruz the 21st yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely incredible I went to Mumbai and my brother said to me um whatever happens you have to go to this restaurant called the Britannia and it's run by a, a Parsi family. So they're Iranians, but they've lived in India for like 60 years. So I went and I ordered this dish that is a very familiar Iranian dish to me. But it was their version. And it was fused with um, Indian spices. Mm, mm. And it was so delicious. <laughs> and I was sat in Mumbai and I was thinking of my brother because my brother's life is food. And I was missing him and I, I actually cried oh. because the food was so beautiful. I felt connected to my ancestors <laughs> in a way that I really hadn't before um, quite so profoundly um, whilst eating at the Britannia, where they had like cardboard cutouts of um, Prince William <laughs> up on the wall. <laughs> Are you sure yeah. it wasn't that that was making you cry? Oh, yeah, weirdly, that was where I felt most connected with Iran. But yeah, I do feel connected with Iran. You know, when things happen there, if I'm asked to do anything, it's, you know, like some people go, why is it when a plane crashes somewhere? They, the news reports will say, and there were four Britons on board. Yes. On the one hand, you can say, why does that matter? People are people. But that part of the news makes you more connected. And where were they from? They were from Newcastle. You can hear their accents. You can hear their, you know, what they might order in a pub. You could, you, suddenly, this it really hits your heart. You can't compartmentalize it along with all the other bad news going on in the world and I think language has a massive part and knowing the geography of somewhere plays a massive part in our emotional reaction to things you know in spite of everything you said at the beginning well no maybe it's connected to what you said at the beginning about being in two worlds being to some to some extent an outsider and so on it sounds to me like you're you're really deeply rooted both as an Iranian and as an English person, like you're, Very much you're quite so. solid, aren't you? Identity-wise, and it's important both. to you. It sounds like it's important to you as well. I mean, not everyone with a national identity or even with two national identities, it's not necessarily important to everyone. But it's it's really, uh, it sounds like it's really grounding you in a, in a number of ways. Do you know what? I'm really at peace with it because for a very long time, I had you know Iranians having go at me for not being Iranian enough. And then you got, you know, people saying to me, well, you live in this country, you should support the English football team if they played a role. All that nonsense that has nothing to do with anybody. Like how you feel about um, your identity. This is, okay, this is probably going to seem like a mad leap. 
but I'm going to go there anyway. But um, what's, what people are talking a lot about in the news right now is what trans people are going through, right? And yes. to win equality. And the whole debating gender, you know, how can you say you're a man when I'm looking at you and I see a woman? All of that. Now, I don't know what it's like to be trans, but I do know what it's like to know my own bloody identity. And if someone tells me they're a woman, they're a woman. If someone tells me they're a guy, they're a guy. That's all I need. And um, I don't need to debate. I don't need to read it. I don't need to read anything about this. I really don't. Um, right. I don't need science around it. I need, I need someone to tell me their identity if they want to. I was speaking to my brother about this because he's very much on the same page as me about this. And we were saying it's because perhaps we've spent our lives off explaining ourselves to people and you shouldn't need to explain yourself to people. That's what I think. So I think it's a weird connection. It might seem like an odd connection to make, but I do feel it. Growing up, I had um, one of my mum's really close friends is trans, uh, um, woman and we never talked about it we never talked about it we never mentioned it um me and my brother when we were teenagers we sort of had a bit of like you know is, is she is she, is she woman like we'd say to our mom we we're only like 13 or something and my mum would say uh oh, mind your own business oh well, you know what a thing to ask like blah blah blah, blah. and that that's quite in Iranian culture that's it, it that that de- Bait doesn't exist, debate. That's a weird word to use. Uh, I just have no vocabulary today, but it, the question doesn't arise. The question doesn't arise. Yeah. It doesn't arise. I find it in some ways um, really accepting. But then on the other ways, in other ways, it's 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 no good because we in Iranian I really want to do a comedy set in Farsi so I can talk about LGBTQ um, stuff because we don't really talk about it. Um, right. We'll say, oh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So and So's son is gay, and that'll be that. But I've only ever been to one gay Iranian person's wedding. You know, oh. we're very slow to um, come out in our. We don't talk about it, so maybe I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult to know whether that's what, where the balance lies there really, isn't it? Because well, in I mean, some ways... Iran, it's, it's, it's a, a, you know, it's, they execute people, so... Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, so... But that's more the Islamic thing rather than the Iranian thing, you know, I think. That... Yeah, but even so, it's... Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. A, a young... Um, a young friend of mine passed away. Um, she was only 23. And she fell in love. She fell in love. And it was so wonderful that she um, had a great love for the last few years of her life. And um, it was a woman. No, None of us, like in my family, no one batted an eyelash. No one. It it just wasn't a topic for conversation at all. You know, and other friends' children, the younger generation – are gay or have partners and it's not spoken about but my generation is really bloody hard you know because I'm 
I don't even know if bi is the right word. Bisexual just seems a bit of a defunct word these days. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's going out, especially with young people. But I could not have come home with a girlfriend at 20. It would just be so odd. It would be too awkward to approach it. There wouldn't be cross or anything. It would be just awkward because we never... But I could now with my parents. They wouldn't bat an eyelash now. Exile and being an outsider, hospitality, communication and creativity, connecting with others, equality of status, appreciation of freedom. Thank you, Shappy, for telling us what you believe. That was Shappy Corsandi telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the first episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider signing up as a supporter or member. You can also find out more about Humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops and online. <laughs>